It's our pleasure to have uh, Ryan Hodson with us today. Uh, Ryan was recommended by Dr. Renahan, who's also with us today. It's good to have him here. And uh, he comes all the way from California. And uh, there are a few folks from California in here, so I won't say anything about California. But um, it is a pleasure to have him here with us today. He uh, came in, I believe, on Saturday, and uh, we'll be leaving tomorrow. So do pray for him as he travels. Uh, and he is married to Annika, is it? Uh, and they've been married for just over a year, almost two years now. So uh, she's not able to be with us today, unfortunately. Uh, he graduated from Westminster Seminary in California. And it's our pleasure to have him with us today. So at this time, he's going to come and preach for us. Thank you. Good morning. I guess my microphone's on. It's a pleasure to be with you all, to bring the word to you. Um, It's a pleasure to be back in Texas again. It's been probably about a decade since I've been back. uh, But it's, it's always good when I come. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 22. I'm reading out of the ESV. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And I'd ask if you're able to, can you please stand as we read our passage of Scripture today? This is the word of the Lord. It says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent others, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart now to see this passage, Lord. You would enlighten our minds to understand these words of your son spoken 2,000 years ago. Lord, this is a passage primarily of judgment, Lord, given on Israel. We pray that you would give us hearts to, hearts that are sensitive, Lord, hearts that are sensitive to your words that we hear today. 
We see, Lord, Israel rejecting their Messiah, rejecting their God who sought them again and again. And we pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who is rejecting you, God, rejecting the invitation to enter your kingdom, you convict them of that sin, Lord. I pray for anyone here who does not see the beauty of this invitation, Lord. Perhaps they've walked with you and their hearts have grown dull. Oh, God, that we would see the beauty and riches of your kingdom that are presented to us today. And yet, Lord, we see gospel goodness in this passage, Lord. We see the gospel and the kingdom being opened up to all without distinction. I pray, Lord, if any have come in here with heavy hearts, Lord, carrying shame for their sin, God, that you would show them that grace is there for them today, God. Lord, I pray if anyone is burdened by falling into the same temptation for the millionth time that you would show them that the kingdom of God is for sinners, Lord. And so we ask that you would bless this time now, Lord. Teach us from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, my uh, seminary program was three to four years long, and so most of the guys that... uh, I went to school with, most of my coursework was done with guys who graduated in three years. I I did it mostly in three years, but I ended up finishing up in the fourth. And so most of the guys that I was really close with, with with a few exceptions, most of them were the three-year guys who graduated a year before me. Now these were guys that you become real close with. You you know their families. Um, You're up late quizzing each other over Hebrew paradigms, and you kind of have all these nerdy seminary jokes together. And you're also, you're there when you find out that maybe there are kids in the hospital. You know, you find out that their parent died, and so you become close in that way as well. Well, when these brothers were going to graduate, I was, I was really happy for them. And I was really looking forward to the day of graduation, because for a lot of these guys, this would probably be the last time I would see them. There's you know, there's Facebook and Instagram, but some of these guys are going to, you know, South Africa. They're going back to Canada or, you know, they're going all over. And this would be the last time I'd get to tell them, you know, brother, I appreciated your fellowship. You encouraged me. I remember that time when you prayed for me. And thank you. May God bless you. I really wanted to be there for that. Well, I think my final, my last final that semester was on a Friday. And I think the ceremony was on a Saturday. So I had been up the night before, probably till about two studying, and I got up early, and then I finished my final, and I was exhausted. So I went to bed early that night, and I slept in pretty late. And I I didn't check to see the time of the ceremony. I thought it would be later. Well, I woke up pretty late, probably around noon. You know, the semester's done. I was relaxing. And I look on my phone, and I see pictures and video from a uh, graduation ceremony that had happened an hour or two before, and I had missed it. I was so, so bummed. I was kicking myself. How could I be so irresponsible? For a lot of these brothers, I'll probably never see them again. You know, I've, I've maybe talked to some, and maybe randomly I'll bump into one of them, but for a lot of them, that's the last time I ever thought I was going to see them, and I never did. That, that was honestly a very heavy thing I struggled with for a few months. I, I was really bummed out about that. Well, I'm sure many of you have had similar experiences in life as well, in which maybe there was a, 
a relationship or, or something, an opportunity to be taken advantage of, and you put it off, or maybe you didn't pursue it as diligently as possible, and as soon as that opportunity is gone, that can be hard. It can be heartbreaking and tragic. Well, although these experiences are truly tragic and painful, still they pale in comparison to the missed opportunity of not accepting God's invitation to enter his kingdom. Those who put off again and again, year after year, for whatever reason, are those who outright reject God's invitation to enter his kingdom and who die in that state. Their case is the most tragic because the opportunity that they had was the most amazing opportunity given to any of God's creatures in all of history. This is how Peter describes this. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, It was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves but you, Christians, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now the term long there, it's like in English, it can mean something very strong. Sometimes it can be a sinful longing, like maybe lust or something like that, or it can just mean a longing. It, it's used for um, the prodigal son when he's basically starving and he hasn't eaten anything and he sees the uh, kind of the pig food. It says he longs for it, okay? It says that angels who stand in the presence of God, who have been in the presence of God since creation, long to look into the beauty and the riches and the glory of the promises of the kingdom of God. That says something about the opportunity that is given to mankind in the gospel. And so what a tragedy it is when someone rejects that, when someone lets that pass by and ultimately they miss that opportunity. Well, in our passage today, Our Lord Jesus is confronting those who have rejected God's kingdom time and time again. In the previous chapter, he's been dealing with the chief priests and the Pharisees, the the religious rulers of his day. They've been doing everything they can to stumble him, to trip him up in his words, to undermine his authority, to sabotage him. And so finally, he says in chapter 21, verses 42 through 43, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And so having pronounced that judgment on them, he goes to tell the parable of the wedding feast. In many ways, our passage today is meant to be an illustration on the one hand of the judgment just pronounced on the chief priests and the Pharisees specifically, but also on the nation of Israel as a whole for rejecting their Messiah. But on the other hand, it's also an illustration of the opening up of the gospel to all kinds of people in the new covenant. So let's look at our passage now where we're going to see four things. Number one, why the chance to enter the kingdom of God is the greatest opportunity of all time. Two, 
Why people reject such an amazing opportunity? If it's so amazing, how can people turn it down? Three, the broadening of God's invitation to include all types of people. And lastly, number four, a word of warning to hypocrites who think they can have the kingdom without the king. So point number one, why the chance to enter the kingdom of God is the greatest opportunity of all time. Look at verse one. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, our Lord could have described the kingdom of God a great many number of other ways in this passage. He he does describe it other ways, but here he describes it interestingly as a term in uh, in terms of a royal wedding. Now, in general, uh, I love going to weddings as long as there's not too many. As long as you don't get invited to too many in one year, at that point, it kind of can become exhausting. But um, in general, weddings are great. You have, on the one hand, you have, it's kind of centered around the love story of the bride and the groom, right? They've fallen in love, and now they're going to they're gonna make their vows to one another. In some ways, you have possibly the, the possibility of maybe children down the road and, and life. You have uh, the father-daughter dance. You have that relationship going on, right? You have the, the mother-son dance going on. You have celebrating. You have good food. There's dancing, I know I'm in Texas and I'm with some Baptists, but there's, 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 there's dancing at weddings at times, you know? There's all kinds of good things. It, it's, it's the stuff of life is what weddings are. In many ways, all the good things that you and I love about life are in some ways wrapped up into one event in weddings. Well, Jesus says, that's what my kingdom is like full of life, full of celebration, full of rejoicing. In John 10, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or as David says in Psalm 16, verse 11, he's praying to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I like that psalm because the word pleasure often is associated with sin, sinful pleasures. David says, oh no, there's holy pleasures. There's holy pleasures and they are good and they are found at the right hand of God forevermore. You know, so often people in the blindness of their sin, they view the kingdom of God as the epitome of boredom. It's drudgery, it's it's having to file an amendment on your taxes. It's not bad as just filing your taxes. It's an amendment. It's, it's going to the DMV, right? It is, oh, this is so bad. I'm just, you're watching the clock. You can't wait, right? But Jesus says the opposite is the true, is the truth. God himself is the very definition and source of life. And so to enter his kingdom is to truly experience life on a level that cannot be experienced outside of that kingdom. In fact, we could say all of the good things which you and I enjoy and love about this life are given as faint foretastes, an aroma passing by on the wind of God's goodness. They're meant to point us to his goodness that we would treasure him. But notice it's even more than that. 
Verse 2 says that this is a royal wedding. This is not just a good wedding. This is a royal wedding. Now, one of the biggest and most lavish royal weddings in modern times was the, the wedding of Prince Charles to Lady Diana in 1981. It was called the Wedding of the, of the Century by, um, by the media at the time. Now, if you take inflation into account and you take the current exchange rate between the British pound and the U.S. dollar, the overall cost of the wedding is estimated between 90 and 142 million U.S. dollars today, okay? You dads out there, you don't have to complain about paying for your daughter's wedding, okay? Almost about 100 million dollars was spent on this. Uh, The wedding ceremony was attended by 3,500 people, royalty, heads of state, all kinds of important people. Lady Diana's dress had 10,000 pearls on it. She had a 25-foot-long wedding dress train. There were 27 wedding cakes, and the official wedding cake was... Uh, I believe donated by the Royal Navy because I think Charles was in the Navy and it was five feet tall and it was a 225-pound fruitcake. That's a wedding, okay? That's, that's a real wedding right there. Can you imagine getting invited to that? Can you in- imagine getting to see that kind of opulence, that kind of over-the-top lavishness and and not just getting to see it but getting to be a part of it getting to be part of that getting to be a participant in it according to Jesus that's what it's like to be invited to the kingdom of God not only is it a wedding and therefore full of life and joy but it's a royal wedding so it's life and joy but on a scale that it's really unfathomable we start to lose categories for explaining the life and joy that's found in the kingdom of God. The opulence and the glory and the beauty of the kingdom that we will experience one day, we experience it now by faith, but we'll experience the fullness of it one day. That glory, well, one day as we we stand freed from our sin, praising God in the presence of our Savior, that will make the wedding of Charles and Diana look cheap. It'll make it look tacky, in poor taste. Really, just really bad, right? I think that the the most holy saint that you can think of in your life right now, the the person who has the sweetest communion with God, they're prayer warriors. They seem, if you scratch them, they, they, they bleed Bible, right? I think those people, they're gonna stand in heaven one day and they're gonna say, I knew it was going to be good. I had no idea it was going to be this good. I had no category in understanding that a good existed on this level. The holiest saint in this life will say that, as will the rest of us. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Paul says, the job of the saints in heaven will be to plumb the depths of the glory and grace of God. And as soon as you think you found the end of it, it starts all over again. That's why Paul can also say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, all those worldly uh, pursuits that I used to have, all my vanity, all that, it's trash compared to knowing Christ and entering his kingdom. I don't want any of that anymore. I want Christ. Right now there's uh, the, the government in a large Asian, Asian nation is um, cracking down really hard on the churches there. We need to pray for our brothers uh, in Asia. And they're throwing people in jail and persecuting them and um, slandering them and doing all sorts of things. And yet those brothers and sisters over there are able to bear it because of the hope that they have in the kingdom of God. Not just the hope that they have now in their hearts, but because they know what awaits them in glory. So why Paul can say, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It doesn't mean that we don't experience suffering or, you know, if somebody's going through something, you just say, well, you know, you're going to receive glory one day, so, you know, toughen up. That doesn't mean that. It means that although we will suffer in this life, when we get there, that stuff's completely forgotten. Just like when a mother gives birth, all the, the labor pains, as soon as she holds that baby in her arms, the joy she has, she goes, I do this again because I have this little baby. Paul says that's like the suffering in this life. The joy of the kingdom, say, oh, I do that again to get here. That's the goodness of the kingdom of God. That's what God had been inviting the children of Israel to for over a thousand years. Which brings us to point number two. Why people turn down such an amazing opportunity? Starting again in verse two, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Well, we see in verses 3 through 5 an intensification that's happening. On the one hand, we see the gradual intensification on the part of the king, and that intensification reveals more and more about his goodness, his generosity. On the other hand, we see an intensification on the part of those who were invited, right? It just keeps going, showing more and more of their heart. At first, the king invites them simply out of the goodness and generosity of his heart. It says, they would not come. Perhaps they politely refused. They sent an RSVP. We couldn't do it this time. Sorry, our schedules didn't work out. Thank you for inviting us. 
You know, who are we to be invited to the hall of such a great king? No, no, we're unworthy. Thank you, king. But then in verse 4, the generosity and kindness of the king's heart is revealed even more. He sends more messengers and invites them, and this time he intensifies his appeal by describing the goodness of the feast. He's saying, no, 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 you don't want to miss this. I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. You don't want to miss this. Come to this. The king's desire for these people to attend the goodness of the wedding is so great that he overlooks their initial insult to them and pleads with them even more strongly. But in verse 5 it says, they paid no attention. They went off. Completely ignore them. They've gone from being polite to being rude now. One to his farm, another to his business, right? We see that their initial, perhaps, politeness or at least a lack of an insult in the beginning was, was all just a show, right? There's something more going on in their hearts. And yet, some take it even further. Verse 6 says, The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Here their true colors are revealed. Their hearts were not polite. They weren't even rude. They were full of hatred. They were full of murder towards the king and thereby his servants. According to Jesus, sadly, that's the story of Israel. Sadly, that's the story of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. God had set them apart from all other nations. He had chosen them. You know, so often in the the New Testament, we hear the term bride of Christ, and we think that the bride analogy is only used in the New Testament, but it's often used in the Old Testament as well. Israel was the bride bride of God, typologically. He chose them. He chose to be in covenant with them. He gave them the promises. He gave them the worship and the scriptures and all these great things. He saved them from slavery where they were being oppressed by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were trying to cut off all the males, all the Hebrew baby boys, and he saved them from that. He brought them into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he would have done much more to to bless them, but they would not have him. Again and again, they reject their king. Again and again, they go after false gods. What we see, though, is an intensification on the part of the king. God sends his prophets, the servants, to call his people to repentance. I'll read from Jeremiah 2. God says this, verse 13. It says, for my, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and two, hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Even as the people of Israel reject God and go after false gods, he's saying, no, you're going after something that's not going to give you life, it's not going to give you joy, it's empty, it's just going to burn you at the end. I'm the fountain of living water. He pursues his wayward bride. But still they reject it. And they persecute his messengers. They even kill some of them. And what did this great God do then? 
he intensified his appeal. He sent his own son. He did not abandon his people. Christ Jesus came, born of woman, healed the sick, performed miracle after miracle, showed them the gospel in perfect clarity, spoke the the wisdom of heaven, and they still reject him. They still reject his invitation to come into the kingdom of God. Therefore, Jesus cries out, verse 37 of the next chapter, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Just as those invited would not come to the wedding. See, when it comes down to it, the reason why people do not enter the kingdom of God ultimately has nothing to do with intellectual dilemmas. It ultimately has nothing to do with the problem of God or perhaps a bad witness of Christians who maybe sinned against them. It has nothing to do with how busy they are in life. It has nothing to do with their career or their family. When it comes down to it, their hearts are simply hardened against God and they are not willing. Years ago, I was sharing the gospel with a neighbor of mine and we had both gone to high school together and he knew me before I was a Christian and he knew me when I was partying and things like that and so I was saved and I went down the street to talk to him and I was telling him what God had done in my life you know God was real I knew he had been raised and going to church and so I was kind of saying hey it's real after all you know and um, he heard me out very politely he was very polite wow man even like approving that's great man I'm so happy for you that's so cool. That's so cool how God has done that in your life. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Hey, um, you should come to church with me sometime. He's like, oh, you're right. I should. You know, I've been thinking I need to be doing that. You know, I need to get more grounded. And I would, but I'm so busy right now. I, I got the fire, got, I'm going to the fire academy. He's a fireman now. Um, I just don't have any time. I said, okay. Well, would you be willing to pray that God would open up an opportunity for you to go to church sometime. And he kind of smiled. He said, no. No, I'm, I'm not willing to do that. Okay, you've, you've gone enough. I've been polite, right? It's not going to happen. You see, if God wasn't in the kingdom of God, the wedding feast would be completely full. No one would dare miss the wedding feast if the king wasn't throwing the wedding. If God wasn't the one inviting people, no one would be caught dead missing it. It'd be the event of all history. And yet, because he is God and they are not, because he's the king and they cannot be in his place, they are willing to miss out on the greatest opportunity of all time, even if it's to their own danger, the danger of losing their own soul. So verse 7 says, The king was angry, and he sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. This is exactly what God did to the city of Jerusalem tragically in A.D. 70. 
Uh, God had ordained that the Roman general Titus would come and, and he raised the city. He, he, he leveled it, destroyed it. How tragic. People given the scriptures, given the promises of God, the promises of the covenant, or the, the, promise, the covenants of promise, as Paul calls it, given all that, given the special revelation of God, to reject him. Well, as we'll see, this tragedy leads to blessings, actually, to all peoples. Point number three, the opening up of the kingdom of God to all kinds of people. Look at verse number eight. It says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Here we see that the invitation to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the wedding feast, is open up to all kinds of people without distinction. Okay? Notice there to go to the main roads. The word there actually is more like um, kind of like an intersection or maybe a, a city center. It's where you'd have merchants and you have probably a lot of people living there. It'd be where most of the people would gather. He doesn't say, go to the really nice neighborhoods. You know, in San Diego, the the really rich neighborhood is like La Jolla. Okay, if you're in La Jolla, you're a plastic surgeon or you, you manage a hedge fund or something, right? He doesn't say go there. Go to the main roads. Why? Because that's where most of the people are. You're going to find all kinds of people there, but you'll find more people there than not. And notice, they're not just to go and select the brightest and the best. He says, as many as you find. Okay? The only qualification to be invited to the kingdom of God is this. One, you're a sinner, and two, you have a heartbeat. Okay? That's it. As many as you find. Lastly, he says, you're not just to invite the religious or maybe the the humanitarian aid workers, right? He says, but both the good and the bad. Maybe some criminals might get invited to the kingdom of God. Maybe some people that are known in their community is, man, that person's out there, right? This here, brothers and sisters, is gospel goodness. This is what older theologians used to call the promiscuous offer of the gospel. Now, in our day, promiscuousness is associated with sin, right? It's someone is too free with their affections or too free in their relationships. But originally, promiscuous just meant something that was available for everyone, for all people. And so a promiscuous gospel is one that is offered to anyone and everyone. Under the old covenant, only the Jews were the special people of God. Only they had received the promises. But now in the new covenant, the gospel is to go out into all the world. Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Writing to the Ephesians, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you, you ethnic Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says that the gospel is available to all. There's no distinction anymore. There's no person who can say, I I can't be invited to that. That's not for me. That's for somebody else. He says there's no one like that anymore. Think back to the wedding of the century with Charles and Diana. Imagine with me uh, for a second, imagine if none of the royalty or dignities or uh, dignitaries or heads of state showed up. Imagine that on the wedding day. None of them showed up. And so the queen ordered, go out into the streets of London. Grab everyone you can. Go into the main roads and bring all that you can, both good and bad here. You'd have businessmen in suits. You'd have pickpockets. You'd have single mothers. You'd have small children. Probably have some criminals, maybe some gang members in there, some taxi drivers, right? You'd have all kinds of people. Jesus says, that's the kingdom of God now. The gates are flung wide open. Anyone and everyone can enter. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your, your race or your gender, what sins you've committed, your criminal history, any of that, none of that can stop you from entering into the kingdom of God now. The gates are flung, flung wide open and all you have to do to enter is to go in by faith. Uh, last year, my, my wife's grandmother, Lucy, passed away last November and uh, it was my privilege to uh, preach her funeral sermon. I didn't really know her that much. I, I grew to know her when she was on her, her last month of hospice. But um, it was very evident that her life was a picture of amazing grace. She, um, she was someone that had a past and she knew it. She, she had my father-in-law when she was 15 and um, eventually got married, had several other kids, divorced, was an alcoholic, made a lot of bad choices, alienated a lot of her kids. Um, and even though a lot of her kids got saved, my father-in-law became saved and his other sister became saved, for years she would not even think of coming to church. She would not even consider the gospel because in her mind she was she's filthy. Like, I'm, that's glad. I'm glad for you. I really am, but you don't know me. You don't know the, the horrible things I've said to my children. You don't... You don't know the times when I called them names or threw things at them. That's, that's good for you, but that's not for me, right? Well, that changed when she was invited to a women's conference by her daughter, Casey, my, my wife's aunt. And there she heard the gospel preached freely. She heard the promiscuous offer of the gospel to all people, and she heard the song, I don't remember who writes it, it's called Come to Jesus. And there's a word, there's a line that says, um, I think it's sick and wounded sinner, lost and left to die, 
Oh, raise your head for love is passing by. That struck her heart and she heard the gospel and she placed her faith in Christ and she was crying as her, her daughter got to pray with her and she said she was saying, no more shame. I have peace now. That's all gone. The past is gone. I have freedom now. And she was so shocked, she was saying, can you believe I got saved? And she's like, well, God, you know, well, mom, you know, the gospel's for everyone. And she's like, no, but I, no, but I got saved. Me, Lucy, can you, can you believe that? That's insane. That's the hope for everyone in this room this morning, this afternoon. Everyone in the room can receive that free offer to accept, to enter the kingdom of God. Well, having seen now the amazingness of the kingdom of God, we've seen that it's available to all. Lastly, our Lord ends it with a parable of warning. It's kind of interesting. uh, The parable would be self-contained if we were to end it there, but in our Lord's wisdom, he, he added a warning here. It's a warning to the hypocrite. Look at verse 11. It says, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the wedding feast begins, right? The, the, the ne'er-do-wells of the town and all kinds of people have been brought in, and they're probably rejoicing way more than the original invitees would have been in rejoicing, and everything's going great, except the king notices something is wrong. There's a man not wearing a wedding garment. What does that mean? Well, back in the ancient Near East, just like today, when you go to a wedding, you, you try to dress nice, right? It's kind of a, on the one hand, it's a sign of respect to those people. Um, you wouldn't wear the same thing you wore when you're working on your car or something, right? It's also signifying that this is a, a special occasion. Something special is going on here, right? That's how it was in the ancient Near East as well. However, this man has gotten into the wedding feast, and he's not wearing one of these. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people go to great lengths to argue that the wedding garment is this thing or that thing, but I think here uh, Spurgeon's advice is probably the most wise. He says, What was the wedding garment? It is a question which need not be curiously pried into. So many answers have been given that I conclude that if our Savior had intended any one specific thing, he would have expressed himself more plainly. It seems to me that our Lord intended much more than any one thing. Therefore, the wedding garment represents anything which is indispensable to a Christian, but which the unregenerated heart is not willing to accept. Anything which the Lord ordains to be a necessary attendant of salvation— So basically, what he's saying is, the wedding garment is this. Anything a Christian has or is. Anything a true Christian has or is, that's the wedding garment. So, 
is the righteousness of Christ alone indispensable to the true Christian? Say, so, yeah, definitely. If you're trusting in your works, then you're not trusting by faith in the works of Christ alone, then you're not a true believer. Is holiness uh, and repentance to some degree indispensable from a Christian? Yeah, absolutely. Someone who has no repentance in their life, who uh, completely lives in sin, is probably not a true Christian, right? We could go on and on. The wedding garment is just anything that a true believer has or is. And so therefore, this man is a false convert. He's a goat trying to pretend that he's a sheep. He's someone who thinks he can enter the kingdom of God without ever having entered it in his heart. This is the person who loves everything about heaven. They think heaven's great. It's going to be awesome, except for one little thing. They don't love God, and they don't want God to be there. That's the only downside of heaven for them. In our own context, this is the man or woman who attends church faithfully, perhaps has been baptized and made a public profession of faith, maybe even a pillar in the church community, right? Maybe an example of Christian living, reformed theology, piety, and practice. Nobody else can tell the difference except for one person, the king. And he's not fooled. He's not deceived at all. And in the final judgment, he will say to that man or woman, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? How did you think you could get in here trusting in your righteousness alone? How did you think you could come here without repentance? And they'll be speechless. Then he will command his angels, bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You see, that person was an error about one thing, but it was the whole thing. They thought that they could have the kingdom without the king. They failed to realize that the goodness of the kingdom is because of the king. They thought they could have the kingdom of God without God. They failed to realize that the only reason why glory and heaven and all that is good is because God's there. And if you take away God, there's no purpose. It's lifeless. It's joyless. We see this no more clearly illustrated in the Bible than in the story of Esau. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up with me to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis 27, verse 34. Now I'm going to read real quick a synopsis of this account in the book of Hebrews, okay? So we're going to kind of go back and forth here. Hebrews 12, verses 15 through 17. It says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain, to grab hold of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, 
though he sought it with tears. Now in Genesis 27, we're going to look at just verse 34 and then skip down to verse 38. Verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. Verse 38. Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. That's the case of the person who fails to enter the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, let us all examine our hearts this morning. Are you wearing a wedding garment this morning? Are you a true believer? Have you entered into the wedding feast by faith? If not, the only difference between you and Esau is that the gates are still open. They're still wide open this morning. A chance closed for him. You're not there yet. Don't let the fear of the truth of who you really are stop you. Sorry, don't let the the fear of that being exposed stop you from coming into the kingdom of God. Because the truth of God will be exposed one way or another, either in this lifetime or the next. The only difference is that now there's still a chance of entering, whereas then the opportunity will be gone. Now, I do want to give a brief word of caution here. Um, I know many brothers and sisters who really struggle with assurance of salvation. And I've had many times when I've preached a sermon like this, and I am so convinced that a brother is saved. I see so much evidence of repentance and fruit in his life, and that brother just has such a hard time with assurance And he hears a passage like this and he goes, I'm the man without the wedding garment. And he leaves church so discouraged and he is absolutely convinced that he's reprobate, right? If you struggle with salvation or uh, assurance of your salvation, don't take a text like this and run wild with it, okay? Right? You may be the man without the wedding garment, but you may not be. There's one thing, though. The man without the wedding garment never fretted that he was the man without it. The man without the wedding garment was never bothered by the depths of his sin because, quite honestly, they're not that deep in his mind. They're not that great. He was never bothered by a lack of assurance because, well, yeah, I have everything that I need in myself. I'm a pretty good guy, right? A saint may struggle with sin for years, years fall on their face and get up and repent fall on their face get up and repent again and again but they are a true saint if there's repentance and faith in them I heard a story about a Scottish minister who was administering the Lord's Supper and he noticed a young woman who was about to take it and she was trembling she was so overcome by her conscience the heavy weight of her sin, of guilt and condemnation on her, she was terrified to take the Lord's Supper. Well, the minister saw this and wisely said, it's for sinners less. 
That's the truth of the kingdom. It's for sinners. It's the good and the bad. For Christians who struggle with sin or for those who are more mature, even though all of us struggle with sin till the day we die. Well, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, everyone here is invited to the royal wedding feast of the Son of God. The joys of the kingdom are so beyond measure. They're so beyond fathoming that I think you and I one day, as we stand in glory, we're going to laugh at ourselves at how small our expectations were. Can you believe that's, we thought it was going to be that? But it's going to be so much more amazing than we could ever think in this lifetime. I pray, brothers and sisters, if your heart has become dull to the things of the kingdom of God, I pray that you would meditate on the indescribable joy and promise, promises of the kingdom of God today. I pray that you would ask God to give you fresh eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and the kingdom of afresh and to repent of dull-heartedness. If the world delights you more than the kingdom, then know that your heart is deceiving you. That the true joys, the true pleasures are found in God and they're found in His kingdom. The doors of the kingdom stand wide open this morning. I pray that we would be a people that are going into the main roads. We'd be a people that are calling as many as we can, making no distinction. We'd not see a certain kind of person and stop short, right? We'd be going to everyone, bringing them to the wedding feast with the same heart and love of the king. You've got to come to this wedding feast. It's going to be amazing. The joy and the grace of Jesus Christ are so good. You're invited. You can come. Perhaps you think yourself today that there's no way the Lord could accept you. Like my wife's grandmother Lucy, you look at your sin, you look at your past, and you think, no. Yes, I'm sure there's still some people who can't go to this. Jesus would say, not so. The kingdom is for everyone, both good and bad. And when the Lord of the feast says you can come, you can come. He's the boss. It's his kingdom. When he says you can come, you can come. Lastly, to those who think they can enter the kingdom, God, kingdom of God without a wedding garment, you can fool yourself, you can fool others, but you can't fool the Lord of the feast. I pray that you would come into the light even though your sin be exposed. The Apostle John says, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And I pray that if that's you, that you would come into the light. Yes, you will be exposed. You'll have to say, you know, my former confession was phony. I'm just now understanding the grace of God. Yeah, that, that might be a little bit embarrassing. I get that but you'll be compensated by the joy that you have by finally entering into the kingdom of God. And you will not want to have waited. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you're so generous, Lord. 
your generosity and goodness and kindness to your creatures is so unfathomable, Lord. Lord, not only did you make us, but you desired to be in covenant with us, Lord, in relationship with us. And not only that, Lord, but it's free. It's open to everyone, God. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who seek your kingdom. I pray that those here who think they cannot come to you would see now that they can come because you have called them. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that do not cherish sin because we cherish more the great joys of the kingdom. We ask all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.